Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, today, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me are a couple of special guests. Uh, first off, Joseph Pierce, the author of Wisdom and Innocence, A Life of G.K. Chesterton. Joseph, thanks for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And of course, Patrick McCaffrey, our longtime sound engineer and, and uh, frequent guest. Pat, how's it going? It's good to be back. It feels good. Yeah. So today we are covering a, a bit of a different book for Inking Out Loud. We're doing The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare by G.K. Chesterton. And <laughs> oh boy, this is this is going to be a fun one, I think. Uh, so I'm just going to jump into a quick plot summary as usual, and then we'll get to the meat of things. The Man Who Was Thursday, subtitled A Nightmare, is a 1908 surreal thriller that opens in contemporary London. After an introductory poem, we meet two English poets, Gabriel Syme and Lucian Gregory. They get into an argument over the meaning of poetry, with Syme, an undercover agent of Scotland Yard, claiming that form and structure are the soul of poetry, while Gregory, an ardent anarchist, says that chaos is the soul of poetry. Syme goads Gregory to such an extent over his apparent hobby anarchism that Gregory swears him to silence and brings him to the headquarters of the local anarchist chapter. As it happens, a vacant spot on the Central Anarchist Council is to be filled that very night, and Gregory is the odds-on favorite for the seat. Syme quickly manipulates Gregory and the anarchists and gets himself elected to the position. There are seven seats on the council, each named after a day of the week, and Syme is given the title of Thursday. He is quickly ushered to a secret meeting of the council. Here, he meets the other five junior members, twisted evil men who almost come across as caricatures. Additionally, Syme meets the monomaniacal leader, Sunday, a man larger than life and bearing an overwhelming presence. During the meeting, Sunday reveals that he is aware of an imposter in their midst. With Syme sweating, Sunday instead exposes Tuesday and forces him to leave and to keep their secret under threat of painful death. From there, Syme's adventure gets more and more bizarre as he encounters each of the other men on the council in turn, gradually understanding that they are all, like him, imposters sent by a mysterious man from Scotland Yard to infiltrate the anarchists. The story culminates in a chase as the policemen pursue Sunday through London and into the countryside. There they find a fantastical scene at a manor, and Sunday reveals that he was the one who gave them their orders at Scotland Yard. As the policemen struggle to understand, one last player joins the scene. Gregory, the true anarchist. Gregory and Syme argue once again, and Gregory turns an accusation against Sunday himself. Sunday swells to the size of the sky and beyond, fading away, and leaves with one last line. A quote from Jesus. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? Syme then falls unconscious and awakens back in Saffron Park, where the story began, and sees Gregory's sister. <laughs> so, if that sounded wild for any listeners who haven't read the book, it was indeed wild. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to know where to begin analyzing this story. Um, th there's about five distinct themes that we could start <laughs> talking about. Um, and, and like, I've, re I've read the book twice now, and I'm still not sure that I actually understand it. So mm -hmm. maybe we can all work together and actually and actually get some answers. Yeah, I've, I've read it twice myself, and I think I'm in the same boat, where yeah. the, the first time I, I read it, I felt like I had just woken up from a nightmare. You mm -hmm. know, it, it was so just unexpected, so uh, twisting, and it, it felt very much like I was missing some sort of cultural context, you know, that this is a book written in 1908 in, you know, by a, an Englishman, and I'm living in 2021, mm -hmm. 2022 now in, in the United States of America, and I just... It's going over my head. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't think we could be accused of, of being overly imaginative if we substituted like the names of certain groups today for the names of certain groups in the story. Like you could say, sure, um, Antifa instead of anarchists, <laughs> yeah. or or neo Nazis instead of anarchists, right. or, or anything like it's the group that is perceived by the community as lurking in the shadows and is very scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Joseph, uh, you, you are English, correct? 
I am. Yes, yeah. thank you for the compliment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I just wanted to make sure that, that I was remembering correctly. Um, and so for you reading Chesterton, uh, do you feel like there is an overwhelming sense of being English in his work? Uh, well, I mean, he is uh, very much a quintessentially English writer who writes about the England of his time. But there's also another aspect of Chesterton, which is the real secret to his success globally uh, in many languages. I mean, Chesterton's read in, 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 in you know, I, there's a Chesterton side in Croatia. There are follow the chest of that Spanish-speaking world, um, because he speaks about things that are that are perennially relevant. Most important for me initially with, with Chesterton was the way that he showed me. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm a modern. I was an agnostic, and I was always taught, which is the prevailing philosophy of the day, that uh, you have to choose between reason or religion. Right? Yeah, you, you can't be both because if you choose, if you choose to be rational. You have to you have to basically ditch religion, and if you want to be religious, you have to embrace being irrational. Uh, and Chesterton, of course, following um, well, ultimately Aristotle, but but obviously Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and people like that, you know, insists on, on what the church has always insisted, which is the marriage between fides et ratio, the marriage between faith and reason. And that was crucial to me to realize, you know, hang on a second. You know, uh, the absence of religion is ultimately the irrational position. You know, the, 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 the refusal to believe in God is ultimately the irrational position. And, you know, although the man who was Thursday is in some sense a nightmare, you are completely correct to use the adjective surreal. Uh, it, pre it predates the surrealist movement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it predates, for instance, uh, other literary nightmares such as... Uh, Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka, mm -hmm. and Kafka actually mentions uh, that, that uh, and I think specifically with, with reference to the Man of Us Thursday, Chesterton. So I think it's reasonable to presume that Chesterton was actually an influence upon Kafka. Kafka in turn is an influence upon the Surrealists. So uh, you know, Chesterton's not—you wouldn't think about Chesterton as, as a Surrealist, but he is someone who has has a, a, a vivid imagination, an imagination which works uh, on the level of the, of the grotesque and the caricature. Um, and yes, I suppose that the word surreal is appropriate. So that the Manus Thursday is the paradox about the Manus Thursday. And I, was, and I was holding my tongue when you were, you were given the, 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 the summary and, and, yeah. and Patrick <laughs> was given the, the various sort of themes. Because I, there are one or two things I would I would beg to differ on, um, uh, but I, I I think that the paradox is it's both a nightmare, a surreal nightmare, and something which is pointing towards uh, faith and reason. In other words, it's a nightmare which points towards the reason beyond the nightmare. It's not merely a nightmare mm, stuck yes. in a nightmare. It's a nightmare which is pointing beyond itself to something which is very very much a uh, claritas, very much clear. So I think that, that, that that's a, a crucial part of, of, of uh, understanding it. And the other thing I would say is that you say that, you know, both of you read it a couple of times and not sure you understand it. I read it more <laughs> than a couple of times without understanding it. And it, actually, <laughs> it actually took me teaching it a few times and having to get really uh, deep down into it for it to actually start to, to, to reveal itself to me. And um, now I feel that when I teach it, I can do a good job, but it's only because... I've had to, uh, you know, read it without understanding it, and then, and then, you know, get come, let it be revealed to me. So it's one of the most difficult novels to understand on an untutored reading. In other words, pure, purely recreational reading by yes. yourself. You think, what on earth just happened? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think I, I can end up confusing myself a lot too, because uh, Chesterton is one of two authors, Gene Wolfe being the other author. That when I read them, I'm constantly analyzing my own state of mind and my thoughts about yeah. about the work and that obviously distracts you from reading the work and so you might miss you might miss things um and maybe also look for significance uh when it's not necessarily there yeah which is also a theme in the book the uh <laughs> yes you know that suspicion often creates what it suspects right mm -hmm. and that's what our our days of the week characters ha have going on with them they and it gets worse and worse the there's more they the more they a, see it there's a chapter title in the book called the six philosophers which yeah. refers to the six days of the week or the six people who have the names of the six days of the week uh you know so with the exception of sunday uh and i think that's a that's a, one of the there's several keys but the point is that each of them represents 
philosophy, uh, maybe different facets of philosophy. In other words, and taking it literally, philosophia, the love of wisdom. Um, so all of them are truth seekers. Um, but they, you know, some of them are, are, are blinded by their pessimism. Some of them blinded by their optimism. Some of them are blinded by their cynicism. But they're all seeking the truth. And so there is, a, there is a convergence between uh, seeking the truth and seeking Sunday. And, and the other thing you have to realize about this, although it's a very metaphysical book and a very philosophical book and a very surreal book, it's also a mystery story, like Father Brown, right? There, there, there's a mystery to be solved. And the mystery to be solved is who is Sunday? Um, who is this mysterious anarchist leader? And the other key thing about it is that everything turns out actually to be much better than we imagine. Yes. And, and it's not because Chesterton's a, a, an optimist. In fact, Dr. Ball, one of the characters, is an optimist, and, and his optimism is shown to be as uh, erroneous as, as the pessimism. What, it, what he's showing us is that we only see through the glass darkly we're in a shadow lands there's a limitation to what we can achieve through human reason and human reason is not the same thing as reason <laughs> you know I, I, yes. I, I, I sometimes sort of um uh talk about as an analogy of this is if a if a dog sees its master reading a newspaper right the dog's reason will lead it to a couple of conclusions right it will lead it to well until he puts that thing down I know I'm not being fed or being taken for a walk, right? So he gets excited when the papers put down because now something exciting might happen. But the, the, so that's the limit of the the, the canine uh, reason. Uh, the, the dog's never going to be able to read the newspaper. Um, so same with with, with with human reason. We we you know, we, we often have the arrogance to think we have. Uh, infinite reason and, 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 our, and our capacity to reason is enough to actually fit the cosmos within our heads. Yeah. Um, I think that what a large part of what the Man of Thursday is, is basically that, no, you can't, but that's not <laughs> bad news, it's good news, because actually that, that, that when, when, when reason is taken to its ultimate, which is the divine, it actually turns out to be something much better than we, with our unassisted philosophy, and our unassisted philosophy can, can, um, can attain, which is why at the yeah. end, and this is the key thing, philosophy, human reason only gets us so far. Beyond that, we require revelation. Yes. And that's why the end of the novel is a revelation, and particularly a divine revelation, and a theological revelation, because mm -hmm. philosophy gets you up so far and no further. If we're going to get further than that, we need, if <clears> you like, <throat> Sunday, right, this mysterious figure to condescend to come down to us and with us, to reveal himself to us. And he does so, of course, in two crucial ways. First of all, the, the whole novel is about the mystery of suffering. Yes. You know, and so when, the, when, when Lucian Gregory points the finger at the end and says, have you ever suffered? Right? <laughs> the whole idea of a, of a distant, unsuffering God is insufferable. <laughs> you know, we, if, if, if that's who God is, you know, he's some sort of, as C.S. Lewis used to say, some sort of vivisectionist in the sky that sort of gets some sadistic pleasure out of watching his creatures suffer. Um, and so uh, when that question is asked, um, first of all, Sunday reveals himself as the peace of, the, the peace of God, yeah. right, the Sabbath. So there's a peace. But hang on, how can there be peace when they're suffering? Which is why the final words of Sunday mm. are crucial, have yeah, uh, can you drink of the cup of which I drink, right? Um, and the words of Christ. Uh, uh, can we take up our crosses as Christ did? Can we be crucified as Christ did? And even if we even if we can, would we be sinless victims as Christ was? So, you know, the, the, the whole thing leads to that. Um, one other thing I want to say, I don't do all the talking here, I want to let you in the moment, but there's a brilliant, and this is this is this is Chesterton as a mystery story writer. And I've read the book, I don't even know how many times before it came <laughs> On one page, on one page, about halfway through the book, uh, we that who Sunday is is revealed to us and everybody misses it. Now that's the brilliance of a great 
detective fiction writer, right? They're all there. In fact, three separate clues in the space of one page, and no one gets it. Um, so basically, uh, which scene is that? Uh, I, 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 let me see if I can find it quickly. Actually, I tell you what: yeah. talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> yeah, I will, I, will, I will try to find it here. Um, so. This mystery, you know, of, of who Sunday is and and what is going on with Scotland Yard and and the gradual revelation throughout the story of how deeply this conspiracy has gone with the policemen infiltrating the anarchists, uh, pulling it back from from you know the the metaphysical from the theological aspects of the story, but uh, looking more at the kind of the gears of constructing a mystery, uh, constructing a narrative. Uh, I, I immediately suspected, you know, when, when we have this moment uh, of early on when Syme recollects his recruitment and there's this man in the dark room and, and all he knows is that he has a tremendous presence and then he meets Sunday and he too has this tremendous presence. And then as he starts realizing that the rest of the, you know, the, the council are also undercover and they're talking about Sunday as this implacable enemy and, and are wondering how can we possibly defeat him? And they say, the only one I could imagine is the man in that dark room. And there, you know, for, for me as a writer, as somebody who has really dug into how to construct stories, you know, that warning light goes off, you go, ah, He's, you know, he's inviting you clues. to make the intuitive. Yeah, point. yeah, exactly. And and I love that. It's subtle, yeah. but it's it's but so you know, deftly done. Even the thing about mysteries, um, and in in genre fiction, is that it, it doesn't necessarily matter if we know the ending or yeah. not as as we're reading the story. <laughs> this applies to like particularly Gee, the Lord Wolf. of the Rings is, is a great example. <laughs> oh, I was going to say we, the Book of the New Sun. <laughs> I mean, because like the Lord of the Rings is our cultural story in mm-hmm. many ways, we know how it's going to end before it e- before we get thirty pages into it. But it doesn't matter. the The point is that it does end in the way that it does, mm-hmm. and and the same is true here. Like we can guess at Sunday's identity, and I think most readers probably will. But but it doesn't matter. Um, the fact is that Sunday is who he is and what he is. Right, and then I would say, Patrick. I'm not sure I agree that most readers, at least on the first reading, do get who Sunday is. Which is why, as all three of us agreed at the beginning, when we first read it, we were all bemused and confused. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, so the end of it, I wasn't confused by that, but I was I was confused by many other things. But I got that. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say Sunday is. We're talking about Sunday. I think it, on kind of two different levels. Where on the one hand. Sunday is the the man in charge at Scotland Yard. He's the man in the dark room. But on a completely different level, Sunday is the divine. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think a lot of readers may pick up on Sunday being the guy who's pulling the strings in the shadows, but may not make the intuitive leap uh, on on the theological level. Right. Well, there's there's some advantages to being steeped in Catholic intellectual tradition <laughs> for your whole life. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that, that's certainly true. I mean, you would have an advantage if, if you know where Cheston is coming from. And this is the other important thing, by the way, that we need to remember because Cheston, in his autobiography, uh, actually says that the the the, 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 title, the subtitle of a nightmare is 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 the answer, which it isn't. And I, of course, I, no, no one wants to disagree with Chesterton. But <laughs> I, I, I point this out is that when Chesterton's writing that, his autobiography is almost the last thing he writes. Right, it's 1935, 1936 before he dies. Chesterton's not a narcissist. We we absolutely know he's never read that novel since he wrote it. All right. <laughs> so, so this this is now uh, what uh, 25 years earlier. Yeah. Um, and the, the novel is a reaction and a recoil from his experience of the decadence in the 1890s when he was at art school, in the early 1890s. Uh, and so he sees this uh, grappling uh, with, with this anarchism, this chaos, this nihilism, uh, the, the ideas of Schopenhauer, for instance, as well as the mores of Wilde. Oscar Wilde, that was all, all part of that scene when he was at art school. He he projects back what was the inspiration for the novel, right? 
but he forgets what was the aspiration of the novel. Mm. In the sense that what we need to remember is the novel was not written in the 1890s. It was written in 1908, which is the same year in which Chesterton wrote Orthodoxy. And if you actually really want to understand the deepest elements of the man who was Thursday, you should read it, dovetail it with Orthodoxy, because the ideas he talks about in Orthodoxy are the ideas he's talking about in a very mm. different way in the man of his Thursday. So the point is the work is profoundly orthodox. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a masquerade as well. So it's wearing masks. But, but, yes. but when you remove the masks, and that's what really the whole novel is about, is the removal mm. of masks, uh-huh. you, you basically get to orthodoxy. I, I didn't know that orthodoxy mm. was written that year. And Neither I have I. read it. But, and, you, and you're right, now that I'm thinking about it, it, it very much fits um, in that Chestertonian kind of way. So like yeah, think about him as an author. He's like, shall I give you the three clues? Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh please. yes. So this, they're discussing Sunday, all right? So just, it's one page. I'll read the one page, and you're looking uh-huh. for the three clues, okay? Did you know, he asked, that this man, Gogol, was one of us? I? No, I didn't know it, answered Simon, in some surprise. But didn't you? I knew no more than a then, replied the man who called himself the Worms. I thought the president was talking about me, and I rattled in my boots. And I thought he was talking about me, said Syme, with his rather reckless laughter. I had my hand on my revolver all the time. So had I, said the professor grimly. So had Gogol, evidently. Syme struck the table with an exclamation. Why, there were three of us there, he cried. Three of us, uh, three out of seven is a fighting number. If we had only known that we were three. The face of Professor de Worms darkened, and he did not look up. We were three, he said. If we had been 300, we could still have done nothing. Not if we were 300 against four, asked Syme, jeering rather boisterously. No, said the professor with sobriety. Not if we were 300 against Sunday. And the mere name struck Syme cold and serious. His laughter had died in his heart before it could die on his lips. The face of the unforgettable president sprang into his mind, as startling as a coloured photograph, and he remarked this difference between Sunday and all his satellites, that their face, however fierce or sinister, became gradually blurred by memory, like other human faces, whereas Sunday seemed almost to grow more actual during absence, as if a man's painted portrait should slowly come alive. Hmm. Have Have you worked out the three clues? Well, that bit toward the end there uh, about uh, not forgetting the the face in absence. Yeah, um, uh, someone being present in absence makes makes you think of the divine. Okay. At least it makes me yeah. does. Yeah, yeah. presence um, is good. So let's go over it again. Uh, the first part, you know, um, Gogol obviously didn't. So, uh, um, sorry that that. That uh, Professor the Worms thinks that Simon's the Sunday's talking about him. Sunday, uh, Thursday, Simon thinks that Sunday's talking about him, and Gogol thinks that Sunday's talking about him. That I will suggest is a suggestion that Sunday is omniscient, right? Yeah. He's all knowing, sure, right? yeah. he knows. Um, and then uh, we were three, uh, could not 300 have done that, something against. I said, if we had been 300, we could have done nothing. Yeah. You know, not if there were 300 against Sunday. So here we have omnipotence, right? These divine attributes, omniscience, omnipotence. And then the final one is even when, unlike everybody else, even when he's not present, he's present. In fact, he seems to be Mm. more present when he's not present. So omnipresence. So the three divine attributes, as metaphysicians would tell you, Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence given in under a page. Three clues, and everybody misses them. Myself included. For <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly did. Uh, it, it, at least in terms of uh, Sunday as a divine symbol. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, that's a brilliant detective story writer because he puts the clues under our nose, and this is only halfway through the book. In fact, well, the, the first and biggest clue... It's page 84 of a of a 180-page book. So it's it's yeah. less than halfway through. He gives mm. us the answer uh, in such a sleight of hand that none of us actually do it. And you, know, you, and, you read it the fourth, fifth time, and it leaps out at you. And, you know, I, I think there was a, a stroke of genius uh, 
in the decision to name each of these characters after the days of the week, uh, for for me as a, a Catholic reader, my first inclination is to try to assign um, the the creation story to attributes of the creation story to each of these characters, especially when you get to the end and Sunday says, "I am the Sabbath," you know, and and then I'm kind of trying to work my way back. And I think there are some connections there, but it, it's going through the story, it's almost a way that Chesterton obfuscates things. He gives you something obvious to latch onto and then hides a, a deeper meaning behind it. Uh, it's so, it's yeah. so good. And it's also, again, like reference Gene Wolf again. It's so Gene Wolf. It, I mean, yeah. it, it's, I mean, I, again, it, it, the mystery story, right? You're pretty correct. Um, so what about, and this is the, about, um, uh, obfuscating, because I've also spent lots of time trying to find direct one-on-one parallels between the six philosophers and the days of the week and uh, where, yeah. where that fits into the days of creation. And, and I think you're right. It's, it, I think it's a red herring. Speaking of which, if you remember in, in, in the, the, the chapter The Pursuit of the President, when they're, they're chasing Sunday and he keeps mm. throwing, throwing clues, messages to each of them, yes. they <laughs> find their way to their hands, right, each of them. And you go, I mean, they they make, well, the, the, the Dr. Balls is, what about Martin Tupper now? Um, so, you know, I, I looked up who, who Martin Tupper was, but I had no idea. And yeah. he was a Victorian optimist, right? And Balls the one who's who, who's who's the optimist. So, so where's your optimism now? But the point is, this is the brilliant detective story writer, because then you think, okay, each of these clues has real significance, right? And then the next one is, Fly at once. The truth about your trouser stretches is known. A friend, right? And it's yeah. getting quite the nest, right? And very surreal. Doesn't make any sense. You're scratching your head, and it goes on. And then, um, the, the word I fancy should be pink. All right, and then that's the penultimate uh, of the clues, if you want to call it. Yeah. That. And then the final one, though. See if you get this one because this this I think gives it gives the game away. The final clue is when the herring runs a mile, let the secretary smile. When the herring tries to fly, let the secretary die. Rustic proverb. So what do you think? Uh, that's it. He gives it. He gives the game away. With that final clue. Do you know what it is? Is this not him directly telling the reader that he's leading you on a wild goose chase? Yeah, I mean, what the, the clue is the word herring, right? Yeah, yeah. Red herring. And, uh, and then, but the but the but the previous the previous clue is the word I fancy should be pink. In other words, the last two clues is a pink herring. Right? Oh, oh, of words, course. The whole, the whole thing is just leading you off in the wrong direction deliberately, right? Um, yeah. Put, put, put you off the scent. <sighs> See, I I, I didn't that. connect those two. I I got the meaning of the final one. But I, I, I was trying to figure out a meaning in and of itself for pink, and I was at a loss. <laughs> Again, I mean, I, I'm I'm only I'm only bestowing wisdom that I've attained uh, multiple <laughs> readings, and then having to teach it on multiple mm-hmm. times. This was when I taught 20th century literature at various Ugh. institutions. This was always a set text that I that was sacrosanct. Yeah. So every single time I've taught 20th century literature, I've taught the man of Thursday. So if you keep revisiting and you're looking to go deeper because it's gonna oh it's gonna make the class better for starters, if you can actually get more out of it. Um yes. then you, you discover these things, which no nobody gets first time. And and that's what I love about it. This is this this book is a mystery story on the deeper level of the word mystery. It's not just a crime that needs solving. It's a journey into the very truth of things. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh. Drew, Drew, did the, uh, the trail of red herring letters remind you of anything? Oh, um, not immediately. What are you thinking of? Um, Shadow of the Torturer. Severian and Agia spend Oh, a couple pages yes. riffing on the whole concept of the suspicious, mysterious note. Yes, you're and right. And the the way that Chesterton wrote those notes and the way that Wolf, the characters in that book, sort of riff on it, 
So this very, is very fascinating similar. because mm-hmm. I didn't think of the note, but during the chase, the the wild chase through London, mm-hmm. I was reminded of Severian and Agia, and Agia. on the steps. Yeah. yeah. The wild the no, wild was, chase. So when and you crash. said Wolf was really influenced by Chesterton, I said, well, this, this sounds well, there you go. Yeah, this sounds to me because the Gene Wolf is one of my numerous sins of omission. But obviously, I'm oh, aware. Wow. Yeah, I know. I'm aware that he's he's a sin of omission. Otherwise, I'm aware that he warrants uh, reading. But yeah, I'm also aware that he's uh, he's uh, influenced by Chesterton. It seems to me, with the conversation you two are having, that it should it's, it's a challenge. I may even throw, oh yeah, maybe throw down the gauntlet that one <laughs> of you should write about you know Chestertonian um, aspects in Gene Wolfe's fiction and, and looking at the threads oh. that connect the two together. And should, I, I, should you ever write that, by the way, and have no other home for it, uh, I would love to publish it in the St. Austin Review. Should, so there's ooh, ooh. Yes. No, uh, like, uh, <laughs> especially especially young Catholics these days would do well to get into Wolf more. Like, I, I wanted to talk to, like, like a Matt Fratt or someone like that. Like, you, mm. need, you need to, like, get his depth is so astounding. Yes. Um, and we need depth right now in, in the church and as a community. Um, yeah, after it, all of the shallowness that we have <laughs> endured over the last 60 years, it's it's time to get back to... Amen. I mean, Chet, you know, the first Chesterton <laughs> book I ever read, which was one of his last, uh, was called The Well and the Shallows. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. the, whole, the whole of that book was the well is the Catholic church and the shallows is everything else. Uh, <laughs> and and when, you, when you have this, the well in the sense of both giving life life giving water and having profundity having depth um so this understanding of of, of, of the church is the well uh, and everything else the shallows is something you're completely correct we've lost that because in the last 60 years we seem to be trying to be shallow in order to be relevant be more immediately accessible <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah uh so it's it's funny uh joseph that that wolf is your sin sin of omission and what For me, it's Chesterton. Uh, I, the Man Who Was Thursday is the first and only work I have actually read by G.K. Chesterton. Uh, uh, and I am very well, much planning on rectifying I, that. I, I, uh, I can, but. I, four, 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 uh, four words of Latin spring to mind, Drew. Maya Maxima Culpa. That's right. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, no, but Drew, Drew I, feel, I feel like I should warn you that, that Chesterton's nonfiction is exactly as difficult to read as his fiction. Oh, that's you fine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, let, let me actually take, by way of agreeing with, with you, Patrick, when, one of the questions that I find most awkward to answer, and it's one of the most common questions I'm asked, because when I give talks on whatever the subject, you know, that I'm always quoting Chesterton because it's something he said that's going to be relevant to whatever I'm talking about. So I'm always quoting Chesterton. So in consequence, you know, at my book table after the after the talks, one of the most common questions I get is, I haven't read any Chesterton. Where should I start? <laughs> and I hate that. I hate that for various reasons. First of all, Chesterton wrote so much and on, on such a wide panorama of topics. But also, uh, I don't know the person asking me, right? They mm-hmm. like history or politics or economics or poetry or fiction or non-fiction philosophy so you know it's not an easy question to ask but the other reason I'd answer but the other reason i don't like the question is because chesterton is difficult to modern readers um so what i normally actually say and it's not being mercenary is because i honestly believe it's the best way in is that they should read my biography the Wisdom and Innocence Life of G.K. Chesterton, because what I do in that biography is not just give Chesterton's life, but as each new book is published, I quote a paragraph or so from it and talk about it. So you're sort of getting the panorama of sort of everything Chesterton wrote with a paragraph here, a paragraph mm. here, his writing. So you're getting introduced to his style and, and how he thinks. And then once you've done that, if, if you like, you have the tools to go in and, and, and do Chesterton in the war, right. so to speak. So, but he's not easy. And the other thing about him, which I say to people, you know, because a lot of people are either Chesterton people or C.S. Lewis people. I mean, mm. some people are both. Obviously, many people, alas, are neither. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, am, I am both. <laughs> um, but, but the difference between the two is that, that, that Lewis is brilliant at taking really complex 
abstract theological or philosophical points and, and, and putting them succinctly mm. and logically and, and it's all getting from A to B in the most efficient way when he's when he's yeah. reasoning such as in mere Christianity or the problem of pain, etc. Chesterton, on the other hand, is talking about something and whatever it is, you know, he's not going from <laughs> A to B, or he, well, he will eventually, but he'll go to A to B. I mean, as, yeah. as his poem says, you know, the day we went to Birmingham by way of Beachy Head, right? You right. don't you don't go there by as the crow flies, you go there as you're rounding round the, 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 the rolling English drunkard made the mm. rolling English road. You roll around the Shire, mm. right? You don't go directly there. And with Chesterton, you have to not want to get directly there. You have to want to go for the walk with him and just enjoy the privilege of being in his presence and wherever he takes you, <laughs> it's off topic, enjoy it, knowing that he will eventually get you to where you want to go. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. No, I, I agree completely. I was going to say, this reminds me of Neil Gaiman writing about Gene Wolfe, where he said you know, how to read Gene Wolfe, you have to be willing to learn. You have to be willing to trust the writer. Yeah, that it's going that, somewhere. Yeah, and, and that you are reading somebody incredibly intelligent, but that this person is not writing in this way to make mm -hmm. you feel stupid. He's writing in this way to make you smart as well. Yeah, and I love that. And also, I think it reminds me of the words of that great philosopher, um, Bono, of you too. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if great. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting adjective. I, I, I think that was an example of bathos. Um, but, yeah. uh, but, you know, in the, in the song Mysterious Ways, if you want to kiss the sky, you better learn how to kneel. Um, and I think that's basically what, what, what Neil Gaiman's saying about reading Gene Wolfe or what we were just saying about reading Chesterton is that you have to do it according to the Thomistic understanding of perception, that basically mm. if, you want to, if you want to perceive reality, you begin with humility. And it's humility yes. that gives you a sense of gratitude, and that sense of gratitude opens the eyes in wonder, and certainly when your eyes are open in wonder, you move to contemplation, and that's where the dilation of the soul comes in, the five like physical senses so what mm. neil gaiman's saying about gene wolf and what we're saying about reading chesterton you have to do it on your knees um you know you have to basically approach it with humility and gratitude that you're in the presence of someone who's smarter than you are yeah. a storyteller as a philosopher what have you and be willing to learn and then with that sense of humility gratitude and wonder that's when the contemplation and dilation happen now if you're not right. willing to do that then you're going to get impatient. I haven't got time mm -hmm. for this. You know, whether it's reading Gene Wolfe or reading G.K. Chesterton. Yep. Yeah, that, that is spot on. Well, I, uh, well, and contemplate for a moment the opposite approach. Not not on your knees, but bending over, say, the microscope. Mm. Trying to analyze when... It, you, you, it, like that scientific way of, of viewing the world sets you up more as a critic than as a pupil. Right, absolutely. Right. I mean, well, there's an old, there's usually an old truism, an old adage, or aphorism. Then that you can't see the wood for the trees, right? If you're, mm -hmm. if you're looking at a, a whole thing through a microscope, you're only seeing a part of it. You have yeah. to, if, if you look, look at it through a microscope and a telescope right. simultaneously, you're and, going to see and, the whole, the and, whole thing uh, in its integrity, its entirety, its holism, and, as well as seeing the actual details, and and perhaps. More profoundly, uh, when you're looking at it through a microscope, you get this impression that you're somehow not part of what you're observing, that you're somehow independent and above what's going on on that level, which, of course, you're not and you never can be right. as, as a contingent creature in a universe. <laughs> you're never going to be outside looking in. It's impossible. Right. That's very good. That, that, they're very good and very profound. And of course, that's uh, you're, what you're doing is summarizing scientism, right? The whole idea yeah. that somehow we are, we can dominate nature, dominate yeah. creation, reinvent it, in fact. Um, and, you know, uh, yeah, and that's... To make ourselves and everything else in our own image. In other words, to become gods, um, yeah. which is yeah. the original diabolical uh, faux pas. Yeah, that's ultimately it's pride. Thursday, because the whole point about Chesterton naming them a days of the week is to get us back to Genesis. Mm. In other words, that really, that what what these six philosophers have to overcome is their pride. Yeah, what's preventing them from being able to reason properly, right? Uh, their love of reason, reason philosophia, right, uh, is is tainted and handicapped. 
uh, and uh, uh, by their pride, by by the fact that they are themselves getting in the way of what they're seeing. Mm. Yeah, it, it, so it took me until my second reading before I, I really picked up on how how the kind of the constituent parts of the story are structured, where the the opening chapters have a sense of whimsy to them, where there there aren't stakes. You know, it's two mm-hmm. poets arguing. You know, and then it we have this turn, we have this shift when. Gregory brings Syme into the the lair of the anarchists and you see how deadly serious this truly is. And then Syme is trying to, as, as Joseph, you've been saying, use his human reason to solve his problem. And as he continues to try to do that, his problem becomes more and more complex because of his human reason. And then only at the end, do we have another turn where, where there's transcendent reason and, we go back to Saffron Park and we have that whimsy return. Mm. And so for Syme, it's all about when he's trying to use his humanity to control his circumstances, he becomes more and more depressed. He becomes more and more um, discouraged. But when he is able to step back a little bit and look at the bigger picture, there's a lightness that comes over him. Right, and, you know, and, and, and things ultimately, make. Ultimately, the bigger picture has to be shown to him, though. Mm-hmm. He yes, it. it has to be revelation. Right. But the mm-hmm. other, the other thing is very interesting. You want parallels? I don't know. If, I know well, I know you haven't, Drew, because you've already confessed on the ever reading one Chesterton book. But I don't, yeah. I don't know if Patrick <laughs> has read because my my favorite Chesterton novel, apart from The Man of Thirsty, is The Born of the Cross. And there's a very interesting analogy here because both novels are framed. Uh, metaphysically in the sense that they are there are suggestions of the angelic so mm. so in man of thursday obviously the two characters oh. were introduced to a gabriel sign and lucian yeah. Rick. i was gonna yep. i was so, gonna bring that up at some point yeah, exactly <laughs> so you have the archangel and 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 and, and the diabolus right uh the, the 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 one who seeks order and harmony um uh, mm. Uh, and the and the one who seeks chaos and destruction. Uh, I was going to dist- ask if you if you noticed any further symbolism to the Gabriel uh, name because I mean Gabriel is the announcer, right? Um, yeah, no, I, I I haven't. I mean, as I said, the one thing about great literature generally and the Man Who Was Thursday in particular is that every time you read it, you you discover new things. So I I, mm-hmm. I, I don't believe that I have the, everything in the palm of my hand. So whether there are, but certainly in, in the Ball and the Cross, the 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 basically the, the bulk of the novel is 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 um an argument. Uh, the, the, on on the deepest level, the, the Ball and the Cross is a parable rooted on something that rooted in something that Chester says in his autobiography about his relationship with his brother. He was saying, we, always, we were always arguing, but we never quarreled. And the whole of the novel really is about that an, an, an atheist, uh, Turnbull, and a Catholic, McKeon. And um, the, the Catholic, McKeon, sees something which attacks the Blessed Virgin in, in, in Turnbull's bookshop, Turnbull's atheist bookshop. There's something in the window, window which, which uh, um, is, is um, an attack upon the, the Blessed Virgin. So McKeon, being a knight in shining armour, is going to defend the damsel, um, and he demands uh, a duel. And Turnbull, because he's, he's as resolute in his belief in atheism as, as McKeon is as a Catholic, accepts and that the backdrop to the novel is the whole world tries to stop them from having this duel and the, the simple reason is for the rest of the world truth's not that important let's just be pragmatic right let's just not worry about these big questions and just sort of get on with things whereas for Turnbull and McKeon so but the irony is of course they come to realize that in their love for truth right uh, and their willing to, willingness to fight for it they have more in common with each other than they right. had with the rest of the world. So that they, mm-hmm. they've learned to argue without quarreling. Um, but, but the point is the novel is framed. It doesn't begin with McKeon and, and, and Turnbull. It begins with a, a monk called Michael who has been kidnapped uh-huh. by a mad scientist called Professor Lucifer in his spaceship. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, yeah, it, uh, it 
and, and, it, and it ends with Professor Lucifer and, and this mysterious mm. monk called T Michael who's been consigned to a lunatic asylum, which is run by Professor Lucifer. You know, so, <laughs> so, so the whole thing is framed in this sort of angelic, demonic, uh, mm. metaphysical space, which is, I think, what Chesterton is saying is that the whole material drama in which we find ourselves is really a cosmic drama. That yes. everything we're doing is part of something which is, has eternal significance, not merely temporal significance. Mm, I like that. Yes. Yeah. No. By um, the way, I put this blind because I don't know if you can see this. It's got, it's got um, foam on it now. Mm. Chestertons. This oh, is a, a, oh my goodness! I love glass it. There. This is from <laughs> the, Uni the University of Mary in North Dakota. The actual bar. Mm. The bar on campus is called Chesterton's, uh, and, um, uh, <laughs> and 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 the actual slogan, the actual motto of the bar is "Think responsibly." <laughs> 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 so I brought that right. back from here. So uh, that I'm drinking a good uh, craft IPA that Chester would approve of. From, I, I got to uh, I got to fly my flag now too. Yeah, yeah. Christopher C.S. Lewis, very good. Yes, exactly. Very nice. Very nice. Good flag to fly. Okay, okay. yeah. So, um, okay. so let's, uh, uh, let's talk there's a little... One... Oh, okay. Uh, you go ahead, Drew, if, you, yeah. if you've got something. So I, I actually am drinking two different things right now. Uh, uh, both beers from Cycle Brewing Company in, uh, in Florida. The first is a 30-month barrel-aged maple brunch stout with coffee. And it is called Thursday. Oh, very good. <laughs> nice. And the other is a 30 month bourbon barrel aged barley wine called Sunday. Ah, no, uh, no. Oh, is, man. Is that, is that a coincidence or is there a Chestertonian connection? Do you know? Uh, I I believe it is a coincidence. Uh, they they have a an entire line of beers, each named after the days of the week. Oh, okay. And oh, I. Seven, then it's, if it's just Thursday and Sunday, it would be suspicious. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah. I, I can't do. I can't do this. All I have, I'm afraid, is there's, there's no Chestertonian connection whatsoever. But it's a, <laughs> a Merchants Keep IPA, which is from Craft Brewery in Wisconsin. That's what I'm actually drinking. Oh, oh really? very nice. I love the glass, though. That's that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I, thought, well, I, I, I thought it would fit I, the conversation, right? Oh yes. <laughs> I've been incredibly boring today uh, because I have to go to a kung fu class right after, so I don't know if drinking is. Oh yeah, sure, sure. It's, it's quite the thing. <laughs> that, uh, so that, I've just been drinking that's water. <laughs> that's a good excuse. Uh, yeah. Um, but okay, there was one last thing about the book sure. that I wanted to bring up, um, and that's the uh, the theme of ambiguity. Hmm. There's so much of it, and it just increases over the course of over the course of the book. Um, at climaxing, when they're uh, in the forest being chased down by what they think is the worldwide army of anarchists yeah um it's 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 a really fascinating thing and i wonder you know what your guys's thoughts are about you know what, what he's thinking there well what I, he's doing. I, I would probably question whether ambiguity is the right word um and i think that particular scene uh, the, the reference would indicate that it isn't because the, the imagery in that particular scene where they've been chased through the woods um, mm. it's one one side is sort of everything is just a blur. So everything is just ambivalent, ambiguous. There's no definition. Um, and uh, I think he references Impressionism. Yeah, uh, Rembrandt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a wonderful just quote in there about Impressionism is... Uh, oh. I mean, Impressionism is basically nihilistic. And, and the reason... Yeah. Was because impressionism had the, it, it blurs definition. The whole thing about an impressionist painting is there are no definitions, right? Mm. And nothing is defined. Um, but the, what happens is that as they as they're going through the wood, everything is suddenly seen in black and white in chiaroscuro. He actually uses the word chiaroscuro. Yes, he does. It's absolutely very vividly, exactly defined. Right, mm. and so there's this discussion: you know, is everything merely the ambiguous, ambivalent nonsense of the nihilist of, of, of Lucian Gregory? Uh, are there no definitions that hold, or is it ultimately it's about black and white and clear definitions? In other words, good and evil, and mm. reason, 
which can which can show us the difference between the two. Uh, you know, there's not a, there's not a, a spectrum between good and evil, and sort of you know they blur somewhere in the middle. No, the good is good is 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 this, and and evil is that. It's as simple as black and white, and the lines mm -hmm. are very clear. So the whole imagery in that is between impressionism on the one hand, and chiaroscuro on the other. So Chesterton, of course, trained as an artist before he became a writer. So all of these images have come very naturally to him. Mm, that's yeah. No, yeah. I, I, Drew. I, yeah, I was going to say that that scene really struck me in in a vivid way because of the imagery that he gives us as they're moving through the forest, and and this on my second reading tied back to my thought of the the humanist element versus the divine element, where when when Syme is trying to place all of this within the bounds of his own mind, it is a blur. It's, it's something that he cannot comprehend. But then when given that, that sort of, uh, as Joseph put a revelation by, uh, from the end, we see it in much clearer uh, divisions and, and we see it in a, yeah, I, I, just a, just a, a clear picture rather than a a blur of chaos and and panic. The other the other key thing I, I think that we, we if we di if we didn't discuss this before our conversation ended would be a sin of omission. So uh, the last <laughs> two paragraphs, which you know, it's a bit like Lord of the Rings, where you know after the um, uh, the climactic moment of Mount Doom, it's easy to see the rest of the you know the next hundred pages of the book, final hundred pages. <laughs> anticlimactic right i mean following the destruction of the ring everything else is sort of you know sort of somewhat so yeah. so this is our um oh uh you catastrophe well the you the catastrophe is the destruction of the ring uh the sudden joyous mm -hmm. turn but the point is after the sudden joyous turn the destruction of the ring we then have this sort of you know the, the nitty gritty, going back to the Shire and finding mm. Sharky and the scouring mm. of the Shire, and we've got to sort out the mess, tidy up the mess that's left by by this m m this cosmic struggle. You know, at grassroots level, and then of course, you know, the the almost anticlimactic. I mean, it's not as if uh, Frodo and Bilbo and 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 the, the, the Gandalf and the rest are ascended into heaven. They sort of right. sail off into the Mystic West. Never to be seen again. It doesn't even end with that. It ends with Sam somewhat returning you know, to the Shire, some yeah. melancholy, returning to the Shire, to the mundane things, right? So, um, but the reason I mention that is that the Madam said for something very similar, and it's very easy to forget it and think it's not that important because obviously the climactic moment is Sunday's revelation of himself with the words of Christ, and he basically explodes, having said mm. that's, that's a climax, mm -hmm. right? Pyrotechnic theological climax. Then you have just two more paragraphs after that, which is Simon walking in the countryside uh, with a friend who's Lucy and Gregory, mm. uh, and they're coming back to the girl who we suspect he will end up marrying, right? Um, mm -hmm. Gregory's sister. Now, this I think is you know the the the, the 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 so the novel begins with enmity between people with opposing views, if you like, quarrel. And ends with, you know, whatever they're discussing is some trivial thing. Even something like the existence of God is trivial, right, compared with the existence of God. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> having, having an argument about something, it, it ultimately yeah. is trivial in, in relation to its existence or otherwise, right? So mm -hmm. if God does exist, and of course the whole point of those last two paragraphs is that Simon now knows that he does, because it's been revealed. I mean, it's a, it's a perfect, also, religious conversion. So the, the Simon in the last two paragraphs is a convert to the faith, and now he has this uh, uh, knowledge of the existence of God. You know, he can love his enemies, because in relation to that knowledge, everything else is delightful, even discussions about the existence of God with atheists. Right. That is the girl, of course, who's, who's also going to be special. Yeah, and and all of the imagery around this final scene is dawn, right? You know, it, not yes. only does it specifically say dawn was breaking over everything, but the colors he describes are gold and red. It's sunny. It's yeah. It's this resurrection. Um, mm. Yeah, 
Yeah, and again, yeah, I, and so if you look, if you read carefully at the beginning of those two paragraphs, because um, this is something that Patrick said at the beginning that I, I raised my eyebrows at, uh, it's not clear that he wakes up. In other words, that 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 Chesterton deliberately keeps it that we don't know <laughs> what this, yeah. this experience. We can't just say, "Well, it was a dream." He's basically saying, "Well, it's not that simple." Uh, that, no, <laughs> this 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 might have really happened in some real way, mm -hmm. right? Um, so he keeps us guessing on that one. We can't just say, "Well, it was a great dream," you know, and he woke up <laughs> and, and he was happy. Um, because you know, he never really remembers falling asleep, right? And he doesn't fall asleep, of course, in the book at all. No. The whole narrative from beginning to end. But it ends with his relationship with Lucy and Gregory being baptized. I mean, it's now it's full of full of uh, uh, caritas now. It's full of charity. Yep. yep. And clarity. Charity and clarity. Right. No, it's, it's, I mean, if there yeah. was a lesson yeah. for the modern world to take from this book... Don't get too caught up looking for enemies out there in the world because, first of all, you're going to drive yes. yourself mad, and second, you're going to miss out on everything else. Yeah, absolutely. In actual fact, especially, you know, you talked about the last 60 mm -hmm. years of mediocrity or shallowness, mm -hmm. I think was the term you used, mm -hmm. you know, in the, uh, shall we say, the, uh, the so called spirit of Vatican II. Uh, uh, one thing that's a great danger is that those who are, should we say, a trad-oriented yeah. lose charity. Um, and, you know, it seems to me that we have, we have two extremes. We have the modernists and the traditionalists, right? And the modern, modernism, the inevitable, the inevitable consequence of modernism as a heresy mm -hmm. is the loss of faith, right? It, it happens every time. Um, but the, the danger of a certain type of traditionalism is a loss yeah. of love loss of charity and ultimately as St. paul tells us mm -hmm. that's worse <laughs> you know um so uh if if um you know if we if we are saying all the right things everything we say is correct but we yeah. are not doing it with it's love legally on the right side point. no right yeah. and self-righteousness and you know and and seeking enemies so you're completely correct completely correct that this book the man of thursday is mm. is a powerful parable for this. That ultimately, that the thing that the thing that the the, the main main difference between uh, between the Gabriel Simon and the Lucian Greg at the beginning of the novel, uh, and the, and and the relationship at the end is that at the beginning of the novel they're quarrelling, at the end they're arguing, but it's it's yeah. this charity at the end. There's the absence of it at the beginning. Mm. Yeah, it, it's. It goes from an argument that is undercut by the threat of weapons and death and destruction to an argument that is uh, surrounded by mm. brightness and joy. And, you know, the in one, there's an impression that this is only going downhill. And in the other, there is an impression that this is going mm. to produce something. Yeah, well, in fact, nothing can go wrong, ultimately, because right. God's in his heaven. Uh, yeah. And you know, as long as as long as we do His will with charity and keep our eye on the finishing line, there's nothing to worry about. There might be a lot of suffering. <laughs> I suppose we can worry about suffering, but ultimately, yeah. in the longer term, right? Uh, you know, that the, the happy yeah, ending yeah. is assured, as long as we make yeah, one of the good quotes on the wisdom of C.S. Lewis yep. mug right here is very apropos. Uh, the devil sends errors in pairs of opposites. <laughs> he relies on your extra dislike of the one to draw you gradually to the other. That's very Ooh, wonderful. Nice. I, what? What? You, yeah. No. Very it's, good. It's, it's perfect. <laughs> it's almost like there's some entity yeah. that's in charge of all of these kinds of things who, who can make profundity out of coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a great point that, too. Patrick, you don't suggest there's such a thing as oh heavens, no! I, we're, we're we're all materialists <laughs> these days, after all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a good spot to wrap this up. Uh, this has been episode number 159 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, we're going to be heading right back to uh, Daniel Polanski's Low Town series with Tomorrow the Killing, uh, the second half of that book. Uh, back to the, mm -hmm. the realm of more typical <laughs> modern fantasy. Uh, uh, but. I know my conversation about the second half of that book is mm. going to be a little different after yeah. rereading The Man Who Was Thursday. 
Uh, as always, if you want to support the show, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud, where we've got all kinds of bonus content, original fiction written by myself or my co-host Rob, uh, monthly newsletter, lots of fun stuff. Take a look. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me are my special guests, Patrick McCaffrey. Adios, folks. And Joseph Pierce. Thanks for coming back. My pleasure. God bless. And thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.